Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4. Hear now the word of our God from 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to all Israel. Some think that the opening line of chapter 4 actually is the concluding line of chapter 3. After all, there's no other reference to Samuel in chapter 4. 
Actually, for that reason, the last time I preached through the book of Samuel, I preached Samuel 4 through 7 in one sermon. So I kept reading for three more chapters. I, there's just too much here to do it all in one sermon. But really... I do need to jump all the way to chapter 7 right now to tell you that if you, if you look at chapter 7, verse 3, we hear how the word of the Lord came to all Israel through Samuel. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. And then chapter 7, verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Now, in chapter 4, there are two battles at Ebenezer where the Lord fought against Israel and Samuel is silent. In chapter 7, some 20 years later perhaps, Samuel will finally speak and a new Ebenezer will be established many miles away from the Ebenezer of chapter 4. We're going to take three weeks to work through these chapters. I I think I kind of rushed it last time. You often hear people tell the story, you know, come thou fount of every blessing with an emphasis on 1 Samuel 7. You know, here I raise my Ebenezer. Because in chapter 7, that's when Samuel places the stone there and says, Ebenezer, stone of help, hitherto the Lord has helped us. How often do you hear somebody talking about the Ebenezer of chapter 4? Samuel himself is referencing the Ebenezer of chapter 4. Samuel himself is talking about the Ebenezer without Samuel. Because chapter 4, the two battles of Ebenezer, this is where the stone of help seems to be missing. Too often we want to fast forward to the end of the story. Let's get to the happy ending. There's a happy ending in chapter 7. Can't we just get there? Well, But to get to chapter 7, we have to go through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. The only way to get to the Ebenezer with Samuel, where God helps his people, is by living through the first Ebenezer without Samuel, where God abandons his people, or so it seems where the glory of the Lord departed. What God is teaching Samuel, what God is teaching us, is that the only way that God can help his people is for God himself to veil his glory, to bear upon himself the wrath and curse due to us for sin, and thus to triumph over all of his and our enemies. Now, that's where the story is going where we start is with the cross so tonight is about the cross next week will be about the descent into hell and then the following week the third day will be the resurrection here I raise my Ebenezer how did an obscure location in 1st Samuel become a part of one of the most famous hymns of the church well tonight we're looking at Ebenezer stone of help and Ichabod no glory. Ebenezer opens and closes chapter 7, while Ichabod, no glory, could well describe the condition of Israel. As we saw last time, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision 
and Eli's eyesight was growing dim. In chapter 3, the the ark of God was still in the temple, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. But all that is changing. Indeed, all of that changes here in chapter 4. No longer is Eli simply growing dim. He's now blind. There is a blind man watching at the gate. You know when you've got the blind man watching out, it doesn't sound like a good situation. No longer is the ark of the Lord in the temple. The elders of Israel have taken the ark out to battle. Because the elders of Israel are thinking of the ark as a magical talisman. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, I, I call it magical thinking. But we need to be careful how we think about this. They were right, you see. By bringing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the camp, they were bringing the power of God into the camp. The Ark of the Covenant was where the Lord himself had promised to dwell. So the glory of the Lord had had come here. So they are bringing the glory of the Lord into battle. But they're thinking of it as a magical talisman. How can, and I, when I say, it's, this is the way ancient pagan people thought about religion. How do you manipulate the gods and get them to do what you want? So they think they can manipulate Yahweh and get him to do what they want. Before we laugh at them too hard, just think about how many times we've done the same sort of thing. How can I get God to give me what I want? Don't we do this? Now, if you think about why do they do what they do? Well, in the days of Joshua, they brought the Ark of the Lord with them across the Jordan to the the city of Jericho. The Ark of the Covenant went before them into battle. And then in the time of the judges, in the days of the last Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the people of God inquired of the Lord at Bethel when the Ark of the Covenant of God was at Bethel. And the Lord was with Israel, and they brought judgment upon Benjamin back in Judges chapter 20. And now, there's another Phineas. You can almost think, hear the conversation as, as the elders are talking. Remember back in the days of the last Phineas, we inquired of the Lord, and the Lord was with us. So, hey, we got another Phineas. Let's go to Phineas. Let's go to Eli. Let's do what we did last time. When Israel was, had been defeated before Benjamin, they inquired of the Lord through Phineas, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Lord was with them and they triumphed. So now, why do I call it magical thinking? Well, because in the days of the first Phineas, Israel sat there before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And they inquired of the Lord, asking whether they should go up or whether they should cease. In other words, in the days of the first Phineas back in Judges 20, the people of God wanted to know and do what God said. Did you hear anything about inquiring of the Lord here in 1 Samuel 4? Oh, right. They were missing that part, weren't they? In the days of the second Phineas in 1 Samuel 4, the people want God to know and to do what they say. This is the difference between magical thinking and Christian thinking. In magical thinking, 
that people want God to know and do what I say. In Christian thinking, I want to know and do what God says. Magical thinking says, how do we get God to do what we want? 1 Samuel 4 shows that Israel has adopted pagan thinking, but it also shows us the truth of what really happened. Because the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. God himself came. This is the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of Hosts, the one who is enthroned on the cherubim. God himself came to Ebenezer, the stone of help. You've probably heard preachers point to the first Samuel. Oh, when Samuel sets up the stone, that's Ebenezer. Here I raised my Ebenezer. Well, Israel had already raised their Ebenezer. They had raised their stone of help in 1 Samuel 4 when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Ebenezer. They were singing, Come thou fount of every blessing. They were singing, Here I raise my Ebenezer, and yeah, God's going to help us now. <laughs> and they're not following other gods. They're following the Lord. What's wrong with that? Will God be a rock of help to them? Will He be their sure fortress? Now, they had asked the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? But they didn't stop to think about the answer to the question. Why had the Lord defeated them before the Philistines? Well, God had said in Deuteronomy 28:25 that if they did not obey the voice of the Lord, then the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Same language. They're asking the right question. They're just not stopping to try to answer it. Or maybe they are. And maybe their problem is like what we saw this morning. Because we... We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We don't usually consider the possibility, what if I'm at fault? What if it's actually my sin that led us here? We're good Christians, right? We just assume that God is on our side. If we just do the right things at the moment, never mind the past, then God will rescue us. But what if God is not on your side? That's a, that's a sobering thought. Israel doesn't stop to ask the question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Israel. I mean, the answer that we've already heard in, in chapters 1 through 3 is that Eli's sons have been, have turned against the Lord. They're not, Eli himself has honored his sons more than he honors his God. And now Israel has been turning aside from the Lord. And so God's saying, the time for judgment has come. Now, they bring the ark of the Lord to the camp and all Israel gives this mighty shout and the Philistines hear this and they ask, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into this camp. And they've heard of this God before. They've heard about, these are the gods, I mean, they don't think like monotheists, we don't, but these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Now, the Philistines had been fighting against the Egyptians prior to this. 
It's a part of the story of the late Bronze Age collapse. Uh, the Philistines uh, seem to be a, a people from the Aegean region of, of modern-day Turkey. Uh, they may not quite be direct refugees from the Trojan War, but those conflicts that, that roiled the, the Aegean uh, sort of produced this refugee population that settles on the coast of Canaan. And at some point in the recent past, the Egyptians had made a treaty with the Philistines that gave the Philistines the coastland of Canaan, so long as the Philistines promised not to hassle Egypt anymore, and basically to serve as a buffer state against trouble from the north. So the Philistines weren't around when Israel left Egypt, perhaps some border you know, sea skirmishing at that point, but they have heard the stories of what Yahweh did to Egypt. But what neither Israel nor the Philistines understood was that the coming of God is not necessarily a good thing for his people. In fact, the Lord has come in judgment against the house of Eli and against all Israel for their sin. Now, notice that the, the Philistines don't think that they are necessarily doomed. You might think, ah, here comes this God. He, look at what he did to the Egyptians. Now we're doomed. But... When you think in a pagan way, you never quite know what's going to happen. And in one sense, at least the way our author reports it, they don't seem to be engaging in magical thinking. They don't seem to be thinking, ah, if we just do certain things, we can... all it says is, you know, be men and fight. This seems to take a very rational stance. Now, I, I would suggest that our author does this... Uh, more to ridicule Israel than to praise the Philistines. We'll see that quite clearly in chapters 5 and 6. But it's worth pointing out that the rational thinking of the Philistines is just as futile as the magical thinking of Israel. Now, sure, the Philistines win the battle. But as we'll see next week, their victory only brings them under God's judgment. So it's not as though, hey, they were the right ones here. No, rational thinking is no better than magical thinking. Trusting in our own reason and strength is just as bad as trusting in our ability to manipulate God. Your own reason and strength is no better than your ability to manipulate God. What's needed, and what we'll finally see in chapter 7, is return to the Lord with all your heart. What is needed, to use Paul's phrase from Philippians 2, is the mind of Christ. Or, and actually, there's a quote back in chapter 2 that shows that this is actually Samuel, the book of Samuel's point. It's Hannah's phrase. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. Magical thinking doesn't work. Rational thinking doesn't work. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight, as the proverb says. So in the second battle of Ebenezer, the stone of help crushes the Israelites. The Lord turned his face against his people, and there was a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Uh, we've often seen how 
the, the biblical historians use numbers as a way of communicating the relevant significance of events. At the end of the book of Judges, we hear that Israel killed 25,000 men of the tribe of Benjamin in that battle that I referred to in the days of the first Phineas. And that nearly obliterated the whole tribe. We've already seen these two stories are connected by the two Phineases. So when it says that 30,000 fell, this means this is a bigger catastrophe than in the days of the judges. And the next line shows why. The ark of God was captured. Oh, and, and by the way, Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, died. And that's the way it's put. Yeah. The ark of the covenant was captured. Oh, and they died. And, and it's exactly what the man of God had predicted, exactly what the word of the Lord had said to Samuel, your two sons will die on a single day. Verse 12 takes us back to Shiloh, where Eli is sitting at the gate of the city. Eli is sitting there watching. The blind man is watching. For though blind, he still sees more clearly than the elders of Israel, and his heart trembles for the ark of God. He at least knows better than to think that the ark is a magical talisman. And our author slows the narrative down to a crawl. And when the man came into the city and told the news, I mean, he could have just said, and the man said to Eli, no, no, told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? Now, remember, we've already heard, Eli has failed. God has judged him because he honored his sons more than he honored his God. And yet, it seems to me that Eli did repent because his response to the news is the response of faith. Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been great defeat among the people. Okay, that's bad. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. That's tragic. And the ark of God has been captured. The news of Israel's defeat is disheartening. The news of his son's death is heartbreaking. But he could live through that. Eli already knew that God would kill both his sons in a single day. But the ark of God was captured? That's it. Now, brothers and sisters, Eli knew as well as you do that God does not physically reside in the ark. But the ark was the physical demonstration of God's presence with his people. For God to remove the ark from the land is for God to say, you are no longer my people. I'm really glad that Pastor Pinnegar is preaching through Hosea right now and when he's preaching in the evening service because there's so many connections between Samuel and Hosea. The catastrophe at Ebenezer, the departure of the glory from Shiloh is very much in Hosea's mind as he reflects on what God is doing in his day. But here for Eli, the death of his sons was but the just judgment of God. The capture of the ark is as a death knell to his heart. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from the, his seat by the side of the gate 
and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. And then the scene shifts, because Phineas's wife was pregnant. Our story began with Hannah, the barren woman, who bears Samuel. Now we have another woman who, in this case, doesn't seem to have trouble getting pregnant, but she's now dying in childbirth. Her response is even more poignant than her father-in-law's. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. In other words, you may have lost your, your father-in-law and your husband, but you have a son who can take care of you in your old age. But the wife of Phineas understood the birth of a son meant nothing compared to the loss of the ark. She did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichavod, Ichabod, no glory. The glory has departed from Israel. And she says, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. And she died. Psalm 78 reflects on the end of the period of the judges. They provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory, his kavod, to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, Hophni and Phinehas, and their widows made no lamentation. Psalm 78 sees 1 Samuel 4 as the final turning point, the decisive moment in Israel's history leading up to the establishment of the house of David. Because it's when the Lord forsook Shiloh, when he delivered his glory into the hand of his foes, when his priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then, Psalm 78 says, then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Now, that's what we'll hear next time in chapters 5 and 6 when the Lord himself goes before his people. But this is a terrible place to stop. And so I do need to point you forward to chapter 7, verse 12. Because I'll at least tell you where we're going. When Samuel takes a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Yes, there are two Ebenezers. The first Ebenezer was in the coastal plain near the foothills of Ephraim. That was the place where Israel was defeated, where the ark was captured, and where the two sons of Eli were killed. But now Samuel sets up a stone in Benjamin near Mizpah and calls its name Ebenezer. The death of the priests and the capture of the ark will turn out to be the means that God uses to overthrow the Philistines. Samuel is teaching his people that God's triumph comes through our weakness. 
the Lord brought judgment upon his priests and upon his people at Ebenezer. But his purpose is to bring Israel through suffering to glory. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Ebenezer of chapter 4 becomes the Ebenezer of chapter 7. Ebenezer is the place where God himself is brought under the power of his foes. Ebenezer is the place where Ichabod is pronounced no glory. The glory has departed. Ebenezer is the place where darkness falls, where the lights go out. When news comes from Ebenezer, the blind priest falls over backward and dies. The pregnant woman gives birth to a son and dies. And yet, when God himself is brought under the power of the devil, when our Lord Jesus Christ descends into hell, he casts Dagon on his face, binds the strong man, and plunders his house, rescuing his people from the bonds of sin and death. Samuel saw that Ebenezer turns Ikavod into Kavod, no glory into glory. Because this is the way of the cross. So do not doubt that God's purpose in your Ebenezer, in your place of defeat, in your place where you are cast down, His purpose in your Ebenezer is to turn Ichabod to glory. Or to say it in Paul's words, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. O oh Lord God, have mercy upon us and grant that we who are called by your name might pass through this Ebenezer, that we might see that you, through your mighty hand you are turning our Ichabod into Kabod. You are turning our no glory into glory because you have raised up your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, from the grave and seated him at your right hand. O oh Lord, have mercy and grant that we might keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves before your mighty hand and have confidence that you will continue the work that you have begun, that you will keep bringing us to yourself and renewing our hearts and our minds that we might show forth the praise and glory of Jesus. O oh Lord our God, have mercy. May your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Be with us in the coming week and give us wisdom in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, in each place where you put us. Help us to humble ourselves before you to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness with confidence, knowing that the work that you have begun in Jesus, you will bring to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because you are, you are good and kind in all of your works. So help us, Lord.
to trust you, to humble ourselves before you, and to live faithfully, walking as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.